need to start looking at ways to save money because we're hurting during slash in the middle of and hopefully maybe we're getting closer to after this pandemic. We're experiencing the most disruptive time in the history of healthcare. With this podcast, I'm going to connect you with industry and CRNA thought leaders to help you thrive in these unprecedented times. I'm your host, Randy Moore, CEO of the AANA, and this is Moving the Needle. Uh, today on the show, we have Dr. Mike McKinnon. Uh, Mike has uh, well, a prolific amount of activity and energy, apparently. He has his doctorate from the university, the University of Alabama, Roll Tide. Uh, he has a, a lot of interest in uh, anesthesia-related matters, including ultrasound regional anesthesia, the business of anesthesia. He has been lecturing for over 10 years at various conferences, hospitals, and programs, and is part owner in CE2 which trains CRNAs in the use of ultrasound and non-surgical pain management. Mike has been working independently since he graduated. So he works in a 17 CRNA group in an all CRNA practice in rural Arizona. In the professional arena, he has served on the Arizona Association of Nurse Anesthetists Board of Directors with two terms as president. He also serves on multiple AANA committees and task forces, or has served on multiple AANA's committees and task forces. And he is, by the way, one of our brand new fellows in the American Academy of Nurse Anesthesiology. Mike McKinnon, so nice to talk to you, buddy. Good to talk to you, Randy. So before we get going, I'll invite you to, to, to share a little bit about your bio, a little bit about your background with the, the very few people who are listening who probably aren't aware of who you are. So tell us who are you are. Who are you, Mike McKinnon? What are you all about? Well, you know, I am a Canadian who is uh, transplanted here to Arizona. I uh, came down after being a flight nurse and becoming a flight nurse in Arizona. Decided I wanted to do something else to expand my practice to kind of move up and uh, discovered nursing anesthesia around the same time I had discovered doing all the pre-med recs for medicine. And eventually went into nursing anesthesia. Now I work in Arizona. I went to anesthesia school in Philadelphia. I work in Arizona. Um, I'm one of the managing partners in about a 17 CRNA group three hospitals and three surgery centers. And uh, we're all fee for service. So, you know, we, we, eat what we kill in this practice and I'm pretty involved in advocacy. Uh, also I'm a assistant program director at national university for the DNA PCRNA program there. And that's been really fun. It's uh, doing new things like that. Like you're doing with this podcast is, is invigorating. Yeah, it, it makes your career exciting. So I've done a lot in the state, been present a couple of times and on the board currently and on a, a number of committees for the ANA as well. On top of that, as you mentioned, you're doing podcasts, you're prolifically prolifically active in advocacy, supporting other state association leaders, uh, very active on social media. So the question I have is, is when do you sleep? <laughs> I get asked that question a lot. <laughs> so, you know, my dad used to tell me everyone has 24 hours in a day. It's just all in how you manage it. So, you know, I'm a, I am a multitasker. So I do a lot of things, usually in concert in intervals. And that's how I get as much done as I do. But I am nowhere near as busy as some people I know. So uh, I'm certainly not at the top of my game. There's room for improvement. <laughs> well, before we get into some more questions, I do have to share a bit of a story. I think I've shared this with you before. So I was a, you had a message board back in the day. What was the name of it again? Nurse was it? Nurseanesthesia.org. Nurse, yeah. Uh, and I was active on that like a, a, many other people. And I, defer, I remember the first time I met you in person was at Mid-Year Assembly. I'm not sure when. 
have to look at the timestamp on the photo. And I was a CRNA and you were a student at the time. And it was my first mid-year assembly. I didn't know anyone. I literally didn't know anyone there. Uh, in fact, I wasn't even dressed appropriately. I was w- walking around in a polo and everybody's wearing sh- uh, suits. And I, I remember walking up to you and introducing myself and we knew each other from the internet. This just sounds like a really nerdy story, but I'll try to make it interesting. <laughs> and uh, I was just absolutely fascinated by your swagger in terms of you would just walk up to anyone and introduce yourself. And I was following you around you a student, me a CRNA, uh, and following you around as you just would go up to the president of the organization, the CEO, and all these people, and just fascinated by your ability to develop relationships and what appeared to be zero fear uh, in, in, in interacting with people. And I think you've kind of carried that throughout your, your career. <laughs> uh, you've got some guts, and I've always kind of been really impressed by that. You know, the genesis of that is actually from being a very shy kid. So when I was in junior high, you know, I was afraid to ask girls out on dates. I was afraid to talk to new people. And at, at one point in time, I just, I, I don't know what snapped. I think part of it was my dad. I came to the realization that if, if you don't make your future, if you don't tell your story, control the narrative of your life, then you'll never be happy. And so a summer went by. I tested this out, how to be like more, I don't know, out there, aggressive, you know, more vocal. And when I came back the next year, I was a totally different person. And from that time on, I realized that if you are not the person in control of yourself, then all the other factors around you control you, your life, and everything in it. So uh, that's how I learned to do it. I forced myself to not be shy. It was very, very, very difficult. You know, I just came to the conclusion that if I asked a girl out and she said no, that was her loss. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that meeting you mentioned, that was, I think that was the meeting where, or meeting after where I got, yeah, it was the one I was in Terry Wicks's, uh, suite for the after party, the president of the ANA suite, because I went up and introduced myself to him. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, good time. I'm, I'm impressed. As, as an introvert who pretends to be an extrovert for professional reasons, I, I'm always a little uh, uncomfortable uh, sometimes when meeting new people, even though my job is to meet new people all the time and, and to pretend like I'm an extrovert. So I'm always impressed when people can do that really well. And you, in fact, can do that really well. So I'm curious about your trajectory. Uh, you, in your professional trajectory, right? So you you went you went to school in in uh, Philly. You relocated, you know, I think immediately after graduation down to Arizona. I think you saw opportunity and pursued it. And you're one of those CRNAs who, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you, you went from from anesthesia school into independent practice, right? I mean, you yeah. is is that accurate? What what was That's that pretty like? accurate? It was, uh, you know, it was exceedingly difficult, honestly. And, and it wasn't difficult because independent practice is some magical thing that CRNAs aren't capable of. That's certainly not the truth. All CRNAs are capable. The, what was difficult was being in an environment where I had trained at the time. And I, was, I would say that it was a relatively restrictive environment for, uh, you know, resident nurse anesthetist training and that you were kind of pushed into the into that subservient role. And it was basically because of politics, right? It has nothing to do with practice. You know, the first time I ever pushed induction drugs was my first day of working. And it was by myself in the OR in a hospital in Arizona where some of the sickest people are in the state. And, you know, that, that sort of fear, uh, and, you know, wasn't a lack of my knowledge. I certainly gained the knowledge on how to do all these things, but it was technical skills and, you know, basic skills like pushing induction drugs, as simple as that is, that was I wasn't allowed to do it. And so the first time you do it, you're kind of like, well, geez, I mean, every time I saw X person do it, they pushed the whole 
stick of propofol and you realize that wasn't the right thing to do by watching them. Mm-hmm. So now you're trying to figure out what the right range is because the dose range isn't always how it is, right? So moving into that independent practice role, for me, you know, I remember the first three months of going to work, I had stomach cramps every day on the way and, you know, was, you know, was I good enough? And I was, you know, and the fact of the matter is, is even though that clinical training might've been somewhat restricted, there were bright lights in that clinical training, stellar physician anesthesiologists and uh, CRNAs who really taught me uh, what I needed to know to be a safe and independent practitioner uh, that were apolitical. And so, you know, moving into that role was pretty scary initially. And, you know, I had great support to the, the practice I went into. Uh, I like to call them transitional practices. And essentially, it's not an anesthesia care team. There might be one physician for maybe 15, 20 CRNAs. So it's independent practice. But there is somebody there who's apolitical and willing to help you. And these guys, they had a vested interest in your success. And while when I was at that first, my first part of that job, I was all by myself. There was no one in the building half the time. The truth of the matter was there was always someone I could call. And they were incredibly helpful. So, you know, those people really have a lot of credit um, due to them for helping me through that initial process. And I think it also been helpful that prior to that, I'd been a flight nurse. I was used to being in a helicopter with another partner at my level, a paramedic partner, who, you know, also was alone, the two of us. And you learn to think critically in a bad situation, which they all were <laughs> in a helicopter, and uh, figure it out. And that was, that was really eye-opening. And, you know, now I spend a lot of time helping people. Uh, make that transition. Mm. So I was going to dig into that and ask, would you hire a new grad into your practice? Have you done that? Do you have concerns about it? So yeah, that's a great question, actually. It depends. I mean, I wouldn't say no, and I wouldn't say yes. I think that, you know, there's, there's two sides to this coin. There's the CRNA side, the new grad CRNA side, and then there's the employer side. So as an employer, my responsibility to my partners and to the practice and the hospital and patients is to provide great service that's efficient and safe, right? I have no qualms that a new grad CRNA isn't safe. That is not a concern. However, are they efficient? Well, they're not going to be as fast at it as the guy who's been doing it for three years and just as safe. And it's a lot of pressure to put on a new grad when you have a high rate of turnover, like high rates of turnover in the OR, you know, when things are moving quick and the block expected to be done in three minutes, not 15. So the right person, we certainly would. At this point, we have not hired anyone with less than a year of experience. Um, and everyone we've hired has, has flown very well. Um, but we, do, we are somewhat selective uh, about where someone comes from, the experience that they have. So the, the people who have more autonomous or independent experience, that doesn't matter that it's in an anesthesia care team. You know, that's just the name. What really happens there is what matters. So when they tell me, hey, yeah, you know, I do the blocks, I put central lines in, you know, we have a, a team, but really it's a, a QZ billing style model where everyone's working to their full scope. And there's just some guy there who's a pretty nice guy who helps you when you need it, or girl who helps you when you need it, might happen to be a physician anesthesiologist. Those people come out with really good training after a year or two additional training over and above their program. They fit really well in our practice. You know, from the other side, from the CRNA side, if you, if you go through a practice like I went through, a training uh, clinical side that was often very restrictive, you feel really kind of lost because I knew from the day I went to anesthesia school, because I had shadowed Jan Menino and Linda Callahan, who had independent practices, Jan Menino owned her own plastic surgery center, you know, and all I ever saw was independent CRNAs. You know, I, didn't, I just assumed that every CRNA was trained that way and worked that way. And so when, I, when you're on the employee side and you're like, well, you go through this training program, you find out you're, you know, you're being artificially restricted for political reasons in clinical, 
right? And then you're ready to make that leap. People aren't so ready to take the risk. Mm. And so that becomes a bit of a barrier um, for you because, you know, what you're really doing is hoping that they will take, they will bet on you, right? They'll take the chance on you. They, you're selling yourself to them at that point. And, and the, truth of the, the truth of the matter is, you know, that's where it gets sticky for employers because you want someone to come, but are you going to take the guy with five years of practice already or the new grad? Well, that's a pretty easy answer for any business person in any industry. You know, you're going to take all the other independent factors, you know, into account, but all other things being equal, experience matters. And so I think that I was lucky in that I had a practice that was willing to take that uh, risk on me and, um, you know, help me grow. And that's really what happened in that in that instance. And it was, it was phenomenal for me. Yeah. I'm curious. Talk about this. We've talked about it from a clinical perspective. I'm interested to pick your business mind too, uh, because you are a a partner, an equity partner, right. In in, in a group Mm -hmm. and and where, what are you seeing, you know, and whether it's Arizona and I also know that you have a lot of uh, awareness of what's going on nationally in terms of trends. What are you seeing in the business and I know this makes some people uncomfortable, but guys and gals, we're in a business. In, in the anesthesia marketplace, are you seeing any trends that you think are indicative of certain swings one way or another with practice models, with uh, reimbursement, uh, with the way that companies are positioning themselves with anesthesia providers? Well, let's start with the with two, two things that have really impacted trends, right? The first thing is would be the pandemic. Right, a major impact financially on hospitals already at risk for closure. Many have closed in the past. We always talk about it. It's it's in articles all the time. So there's downward economic pressure on facilities to begin with, right? And then the pandemic happens. So you got two things. Everyone's looking to expand access to care at a reasonable cost. And that includes anesthesia services. And so what the trend has been, I my personal opinion, at least in in my view of the last eleven years of doing this. Um, is that there's been a trend toward a change in practice model to have everyone working to the top of their license. Now, people generally hate that phrase, the top of their license. What does that mean? It's ambiguous. Well, it means CRNAs doing the job that they train for, physician anesthesiologists doing the job they train for. I mean, that's what we did. We went to school or education and did a residency in order to learn how to do this stuff. And that means a trend in increase in QZ billing. Now, I hate using the word QZ billing with independent practice because that's not what it means. I want to make that clear. You know, QZ billing just simply means no medical direction. So effectively, um, billing is blinded to any physician anesthesiologist involvement. Doesn't mean there isn't one, but most often it means it's not a medical direction practice. So there's there's not that there's not that limitation of um, TEFRA rules, the seven TEFRA rules that puts people at risk for fraud. You know, and things that hospitals and Groups don't ever want to hear in a sentence those two words are Medicare mm. fraud. Right? Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's not a good day. And uh, so, you know, I think there's definitely a trend toward this this open, autonomous, flash independent model in anesthesia services, which could look like a blended model. It still can be a team in anesthesia because it's always a team, right? There's always a team with surgeons and anesthesia and surgical techs and OR nurses. So the team is always together. It's just how the anesthesia side of the team exists. It might be a CRNA only team. Or it might be a CRNA only in one room and a physician anesthesiologist in another room. We're still all a team. Or it might be all physician anesthesiologists in in a hospital. Whatever works for the facility. And I think, you know, that fiscal downward pressure, what was the question? The answer is money. What was the question? That whole thing uh, comes down to why we're seeing this advancement. And I would say that the advancement in changes in laws, both state and federally, even at the VA level, 
and uh, the the downward economic pressure that's been multiplied a hundredfold by the pandemic has moved this process down the road far faster than I would have expected. And uh, so I would say the trend is to having everybody do the work that they were trained to do at the at the maximum of their capability and put people in the right places that maximize uh, efficiency. You know, ultimately. Yeah, I'm curious for you personally, your company. What what's your what's your plan? Are are you guys uh, and gals are are you all want to keep the status quo? Are you looking for growth? Are you positioning yourself to explore other areas within the state or or the region? What what's going on there? That's a good question, and you know the answer to that changes based upon what's happening at the time. So right now in the in the anesthesia market, there seems to be a dearth of potential employees, right? People to do the job. Now, uh, some would argue that that lack of people is artificial because there's a whole lot of people who are supervising other people not actually doing the job. And if we had them all sit the stool and do the cases, we wouldn't be in a shortage. You know, that's that's an argument that can be made. But being how it is, uh, you know, the cost of of anesthesia services from an employee perspective is only going up. So at, at this point, we're seeing an increase in the market of expectations. Now, you know, you could call that a housing bubble in the anesthesia services market because it's not sustainable. Ultimately, you know, there's a point at which hospitals can no longer afford to pay the additional subsidy for maybe an anesthesia care team or physician only practice. So then it transitions down to a supervision practice, equal care, equal uh, safety, equal service, just a different model, not what maybe they're used to. That's all beneficial to CRNAs. But when you have not enough CRNAs and the per hour increases or the salary increases, it, it then changes the answer to my question of how much growth I want to do. I think that the market's positioned well for small companies like ours, uh, you know, 17 CRNAs, three hospitals, three surgery centers. We run lean, right? We don't have a, um, we don't have a, a practice management part of the company. We don't have a, um, you know, a, a full uh, secretary who takes all the stuff. We don't have a building. We don't have overhead. We don't have all this other stuff that larger companies simply have to have to operate at that size. We do it all ourselves. So that makes us really lean. You know, in an, in an average market, 10% is a great uh, return on an anesthesia contract, you know, and we're probably six, you know, mm. and we can do that because we don't need the 4% to pay for the back office. It doesn't exist. The downside to that model is that we also can't expand the way a larger company can. We don't got a million and a half sitting in the bank to open a practice and carry the salaries for the next six months before billing kicks in. So with salaries being high, that puts us at a lot of risk. So we're well positioned to think outside the box and create contracts that are partnerships with facilities where we do transparent, total transparency. They know our numbers. We, we true up every quarter and let them know costs. And then we don't charge them a flat subsidy. We charge them a floating subsidy. So all boats rise with a rising tide as opposed to just getting money. We only get money. We get less money and they get close to free service if they provide more and more coverage. So if, if they provide more cases, so more surgeons come in, more cases are done. We bill more, they pay less for the subsidy. Um, so that has worked really well for us, but that model would be difficult to sustain in a large 10, 15, 20, 30, 60 hospital practice. I think that would be a struggle because you'd have to have the money for that back office. You then have to build that into the contract cost. Mm. So we're so the short answer is we're looking to expand into small facilities in a similar marketplace. Probably uh, less interested to go outside of the state at this point, more interested to stay in our niche inside the state. 
Do you see, I'm curious, I want to, because I didn't really anticipate the conversation going this way, but you've really intrigued me about with those last comments is if the play here is, I mean, there's a perfectly reasonable business model to say we want to stay small uh, and we'll be, mm-hmm. we'll be absolutely happy doing that. We don't have to be a hundred million dollar company or a, or a $500 million company because at the end of the day, uh, the, 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 the partners and the employees are doing well and they're, and they're happy. That's perfectly reasonable. Do you think that approach with let's focus on smaller facilities, uh, focusing on the relationships, keeping the expenses low, uh, do you think there are targets outside of the you know, community, let's say the critical access or the rural hospital? You know, those commun- I'm thinking about those community hospitals where they're not the big medical centers with all the politics and all of that, but they are providing significant, fairly significant volume of surgical procedures. Do you, do you see that as a niche for the smaller companies, the regional companies? 100%. Those community hospitals, I mean, I, I hate to put a number on, but let's say less than 300 beds. That's just a wild estimate there of what a community hospital might be. Uh, you know, if they're doing the volume, they have reasonable um, uh, coverage expectations. And of course, you have to take into account the payer mix that changes everything as well. Mm-hmm. Then you can, you can definitely set up a situation where you're in partnership and do well. Uh, in the model that we have set up. Now, at some point in time, you're going to need a, an HR department or a person. You know, I mean, that, that that's just an inevitability once you hit a certain number of people, whatever that number might be, that you can no longer maintain that as the partners. I mean, there's seven of us that are, uh, that are partners in, the, in this group, and there's 17 people. It's easy to maintain. We all just divide up the responsibility uh, as owners. But in a company that might have 100 employees, I don't know that you can do it that simply anymore with seven partners you might need someone. And maybe there's money in the contracts now that you can do that at that 6%. You know what I mean? That there's enough volume financially coming in that you can afford that person. So I think it's doable. I, I know there's companies in Arizona currently, CRNA-owned companies that are doing those uh, mid-sized community hospitals in the two to 300 bed range, and they're successfully doing it. And they have outbid everyone else because they do a similar model to us. Uh, more of a flat subsidy because they have some things like trauma call that aren't accounted for, but uh, a little bit different, but, you know, similar model and they're successful at it. And the services being provided are appreciated and lauded by the facilities that have them. So it can be done. Now, once you, the, the, the problem with going from being a small company like mine to a larger company like that is we, you know, CRNAs or A-type personalities, often very controlling, right? The way I do anesthesia is the best way. The way you do it's not as good, but hey, you seem to be okay. <laughs> that kind of thing. That's just the way all CRNAs generally think, you know? And so I, I think that we struggle to, to let go of control. You know, I can guarantee quality when I am directly involved. If I go to the facilities that I go to, if I go, um, you know, hire people directly myself, I can control for that quality. I always make sure I'm getting the kind of people that we need in our group to be successful. Now, you're not always perfect at that, but you do your best and you have a personal interest, right? No one cares about your company as much as you do. And so when you start to expand geographically past a certain distance, you just can't be there once a week or every, every month like you could have otherwise. You can't have that touch, the constant touch, which really matters to administrators because you know, you're not really selling an anesthesia service. There's lots of anesthesia services. They're all good. Uh, the question is, can you sell yourself in an RFP when the hospital puts out a request for proposal and you respond? You're selling yourself. You're selling yourself and you use your experience, the hospitals you already or facilities you already have, as basically 
street cred, right? Like here, you know, we've done it here and you can talk to those people and they'll let you know it's good. But so when you lose that touch, I think it makes it a little bit more difficult to maintain the same group that you've, you've built. It, it may be possible, but isn't that the most common complaint against the large AMCs? You know, they're this, you know, in the ether group of people who are all, you know, owners, equity owners, they're not in anesthesia, they're venture capitalists, and they just want to get their money out of it, so they're trying to take it out of my pocket. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's a different way of doing business. It's not wrong. It's certainly a way of doing business, and it expands, expands services as needed, but that's not how we do it. And I'm not sure we would ever be willing as a group of people that are very focused on this quality thing to go down that road. Not that you can't do a quality, but it's expensive. And I don't know that our model would support it in that large of a, in that large of a scope. Yeah. I've had recent conversations with some folks who will say, you know, just the level set for our listeners is that the anesthesia market, there's been consolidation for sure, but it still remains a pretty fragmented market. There are a lot of players. Uh, and at the top, you're talking about the big, large anesthesia management companies. Some of them have north of half a billion dollars a year in revenue. And, and it's interesting to watch them position themselves because they're buying each other. They're competing with each other. They're competing with payers. Uh, there's, uh, there's this interesting phenomenon that I think where I'm seeing a lot of, not I shouldn't say a lot, I'm hearing and sensing that there's some over-promising and under-delivering. And so there's hospitals and health systems that are now moving away from some of these large anesthesia management companies and either internalizing the anesthesia workforce or going to the regional, you know, the next tier or regional players. I, I have to wonder what the long-term prognosis of all that's going to be is are we going to see more and more consolidation where you're going to see the large anesthesia management companies continue to get bigger and bigger they buy each other compete against each other buy each other or will we still have this kind of fragmented decentralized anesthesia marketplace yeah you know it's uh if the if the shortage continues as it's going then those larger companies have an advantage over those small regional companies They actually have a couple of advantages yes they have that whole group of costs with the human resource department and everything, but they also are able to negotiate better rates from commercial insurances because of their size and the number of lives under in network that they may service, right? You know, like we have a benefit because we're the only game in town, so we get to negotiate better. But those guys have a benefit because if you don't go to them, there may not be a service for you at that facility in anesthesia. The big AMC has it. So they may be able to negotiate rates as much as 30% higher than the small regional group because they just don't have the volume in that in that regional area to negotiate for more, right? What that does is it doesn't only give them more money, it allows them to do it for less subsidy. So they go and they take that, they take that, you know, group, that regional group, say a group like mine who's doing it, let's say they're doing it for we're an anesthesia care team company and we do it for three million dollars. And in walks this big AMC and they look, they do an analysis of the billing and they look at the commercial contract and realize that their rates in that region are 10 bucks more a unit for every single commercial insured contract, just as an example. They take that, they figure out what they need to make in profit on that, and they take the rest off the subsidy. And now all of a sudden that $3 million subsidy is $750,000 and the hospital immediately realizes a $2.25 million savings, right? And when you say that number to a facility that sees anesthesia subsidies is the low-hanging fruit of healthcare cutting, right? That gets their attention. So there is a benefit there to those big AMCs. They, they also do a phenomenal presentations for when they, do, when they respond to requests for proposals. But it is certainly the truth that they under-deliver often. At least that's what we hear all the time. You know, they're going to do all these things. They're going to provide all these services. And then all of a sudden, they can't get the people to come work there or the people that come work there don't like the way the 
practice maybe is run, whatever the complaint is, or the money's not enough. And it's a constant turnover where we just don't have that, right? Um, I also think they have the benefit of, you know, approaching monopoly level status. I mean, when look at Florida and USAP, you know, like there's, they, they own so many of the big hospitals. If, if you don't want to work for them, you're limited to where you can work. So now they get to control some of the labor market in a way. So as those wages are going up in other places and we just can't compete with it, those AMCs, A, not only have the money to fund that stuff for a period of time if they want to, but B, also have the, the power to turn around and say, well, you don't have to work here. Um, you can work four hours away from where you live, <laughs> you know, and that there's something to be said about that from a control perspective. That doesn't make it right or wrong. It just is uh, the negative to those big AMCs, which is really what gives us there's two things that really gives us the edge. One is that, you know, those, those big AMCs aren't just providers making money and the owners making a little bit off a contract. They're providers getting paid. That's about 80% of your cost, somewhere in that range of the cost of employees. It depends on, you know, the practice, what you're paying, et cetera. And the rest is that back end cost plus profit to the ownership, right? So, you know, when you've got a big AMC, they're not just seven guys making some money off each contract that might equate to 10 grand a year. You know? mm-hmm. They're, they're like uh, venture capitalists and they're a third person taking from the pot of revenue. And so instead of my company where there's no third person really taking from the pot of revenue, that company has a third person expecting quarter on quarter increase in profit margins because that's why they're in it. Mm-hmm. Right. That's a negative for them because then they'll make decisions and that decision is probably going to come down to cost of employees since it's almost, the entirety of the cost of, of running an anesthesia business to take from them. Yeah. And that's how you lose people that are good. Right. We don't have that happen. Plus we have that personal touch that they don't have because we're local. Yeah. And that's the thing you see this even in the broader economy. When you talk about companies who are public or who are supported by private equity or venture capital, they're looking at quarterly reporting and they mm-hmm. make a lot of short term decisions that end that in the long term are terrible decisions, right? Because they're, they're, you know, typically how this works, as I understand it, is a private equity firm will come in, they're around for three to five years. They think they, they buy an undervalued company. They try to make it, uh, they, they try to make changes in, in to, to increase its performance. And then the, the end goal here is to sell it at a profit, no. typically, right? That creates a lot of short-term mindset. Uh, and I think, and I think as you have implied, I think that's causing a lot of, for lack of a better term, churn in contracts. Mm-hmm. And I'm hearing that there, there's an expectation that that's going to increase significantly. Yeah. There's definitely a space for the smaller guy to take contracts from those AMCs. And that's happened here in Arizona, at leaps and bounds, frankly. Um, and I think it's going to happen and we have a great environment for that, but I think it's going to happen in many places and is happening in many places simply because, you know, there's just, there's just two things hospitals want, right? There's only one thing they want to keep the surgeons happy. So let's start there. <laughs> they want to keep the economic engine of the OR which is the entire economic engine of the facility, you know, maybe the ER somewhere in a distant second, happy and running at as much efficiency as possible. And the other two things are expand access, give me more service and do it at a reasonable cost, you know, be efficient. Those are the things they care about. And when you have a third person taken from the pot like that and a total turnover of employees all the time, you know, the thing the surgeons hate the most is a new face in the OR. They hate it. They hate it because now they don't know, oh, is that guy good? Are they bad? Is, is she going to do a good anesthetic? Are my patients going to be calling me all night because their blocks don't work? I mean, that's really a concern for them. That's, that's really what they care about ultimately, right? Um, because it decreases their efficiency. So when you have that personal touch, you live in the community, you hang out with these people, you're involved in the hospital and committee, very different 
than being a venture capitalist sucking money out to sell in three years. And the, the scope and focus is different. And everyone's an employee at that facility now. They're not the owners. So, you know, just like I said before, the only, no one cares as much about your business as you do. You know, if, you're, if the owners aren't there and in person, it's very difficult to hire people who think of it that way or will go the extra mile that way. And that, that's a problem for those large AMCs, frankly. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting times we're living in and working in. Sure and there's, uh, there's With the challenges comes significant opportunity. I'm curious, Mike, uh, what's something that you have changed your mind about in the last year or so? You know, I, I thought about this question for a while, and, and there's, there's so many things, especially since last year, I may have changed my mind about. But probably what I've changed my mind about specifically is how, you know, the opportunity for CRNAs to be utilized in the most economic way and expanding access to care. I knew it was going to happen, but I really thought it was going to happen closer to the end of my career, maybe halfway through my career, where we're going to see that movement happen more and more. And then the pandemic happened, right? So I learned two things when the pandemic happened. It turns out that I don't work in a pandemic-proof industry, right? <laughs> and, that, and that for three months, I did 15 cases, wow. <laughs> and I was doing 60 to 100 a month. You know, so I learned that, and I learned that my dad was right when he said you should always have three months of income saved, uh, <laughs> right? And I did. Lesson learned. Listen, uh, for our students, yeah, our residents, learned. yeah, write that down. Yeah. Write that down. It's uh-huh. very true, right? Yeah. And look, that could happen if your most busiest surgeon got in a car accident and couldn't work anymore, and they're one of three in your facility if you have a small place. So you, you should plan for that all the time, right? Uh, the second thing I learned was that this, something like a pandemic could force such, an, such a pressure upon facilities to look for ways to save money, be more efficient, right? Saving money is not the word. We want to be more efficient, but yet provide the same quality of care, right? So they're looking at saying, well, we still have to provide great care. We still have to be close to Six Sigma safety, which is what all anesthesia is. We still have to give the services to the surgeons as they expect so that the economic engine of the hospital, the OR, continues to run at as much efficiency as possible. But we need to start looking at ways to save money because we're hurting during slash in the middle of, and hopefully maybe we're getting closer to after this pandemic. And so there has been a rapid shift from my perspective. I mean, I think I thought things were going to change kind of glacially, (laughs) you know, Mm. but in the last year in Arizona, even year and a half, things have rapidly shifted to people working to the full scope of their license, more independent CRNA practices than there have ever been in, in urban areas more um, collaborative practices where it's not medical direction and people are in their own rooms or there's one guy and 20 CRNAs doing the work. You know, it's just CRNAs taking contracts, CRNA companies taking contracts from predominantly traditionally anesthesia care team practices in Phoenix proper. I would have, if you had asked me two years ago how long that will take, I would have said a decade, maybe closer to 20 years, Hmm. just because of the perceptual value of the word physician, truthfully. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, you know, because hospitals should be allowed to pick whatever model they want. That's up to them. It's just all about whether they can afford it or not. Um, now, all of a sudden, there's a lot of pressure. And you've seen all these restrictions eliminated all across the country during a temporary, in temporary ways that have, some of them can, can became permanent due to COVID, the pandemic. And, you know, it turns out that CRNAs do a phenomenal job in the OR with the sickest of the sick patients on their own. But they also do great in the ICU taking care of those sick patients. And we removed all these limitations and all these restrictions that our detractors would have said, well, you're going to be stacking up in the cordwood, in the more like cordwood if you do that. And yet 
nothing happened, right? Patients got great care. Access to care was expanded because CRNAs and APRNs were allowed to do whatever they needed to do to provide access by removing artificial barriers. And here we are, and states are changing rapidly. States yeah. I would have never guessed would be having the discussion have already passed laws. Mm. And that's phenomenal to me. Uh, so that's definitely in the anesthesia world, the primary thing I would say I have changed my opinion on because I just watched it happen in a year. Yeah, it's a good time. Uh, well, it's not a good, I mean, it's a difficult time because of the pandemic, but it's a good time to be a CRNA. And uh, certainly uh, looking into the future, as Juan Quintana has said when he was president and and after that, is the, the future is bright uh, for the profession, and there's tons of opportunity. And I cannot it thank is. you enough uh, for joining me today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Randy. We always have great discussions. Yeah, I really look forward to it, the next one. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. McKinnon. That was a lot of fun. And thank you to the listeners for listening in here on Moving the Needle. Hey, if you like what you're hearing, tell your friends, tell your colleagues, subscribe. And until next time, take care of yourself.